Okay, let's do this. Hey everyone, it's Angelo. You're listening into the Stories Podcast. Uh, I've got something really interesting today. I'm actually recording by Skype and I'm talking to Isla, a good friend of mine from U of T. We did Demo Music Magazine together. We wrote articles and did some fun stuff, talked about music. Uh, And I think we might have had classes together. Did you want to say hi? Hi. Yeah, I don't know. Did we take Paul? Were you in Paul 101? No, there were like some like there were some hundred kid and thousand kid classes at this point. Like, I don't even know. Yeah, I I don't know. I could have had classes with God knows who and wouldn't have known. Funny story. One time I had a class with someone in Asian politics and then I came to Copenhagen on exchange and he was also on exchange. And we talked once. That's so funny. And that's the only time we ever talked, even though we had like a, a full year class and then was in a completely different country and was like, oh, you, you took that, you took that class, cool. Uh, yeah. Very there's, interesting. There's just <laughs> a gigantic classes at U of T, you know, but if you hang around this, like there, there seems to be almost like a circle of same people that take the same courses. If you're in like poli-sci history or IR, especially in IR, you're taking like all of the same courses and you see the same people, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And I had yeah. friends who were in like PCJ and, and IR and they sort of had like these clusters of people who they knew. And then, I don't know, UFT though, it's so big. You have these like social clusters that sort of form very organically. And it's, it's, it's really strange. It's a really strange phenomenon. It's like such a large university, but also so small at the same time. I know. UFT is a weird, weird place. Uh, yeah. I, I Even after like, what, two years out? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm like, what the hell is that place? I don't understand. It's it's quite an experience, and I, you know, in some ways, I don't regret it um, because yeah. oh, I, yeah. I've learned a lot, um, not just in like academic terms, but like socially, you know, like just um, you know, getting to learn. It's it's its own little microcosm of society. Um, with all of its different personalities and all of these different quirks, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And I, yeah, like I, I remember talking to my friends, and I was like, "Fuck, like you see, it's just, it's, it's really challenging. Like it, it can be really difficult at times." And I just sort of looked at them, but I was like, "I can't think of any other place I would would have like fit better into." Like it was almost like I felt this, like at times, this legitimate hatred for the place. But at the same time, it was, I was sort of like, I, like, I don't think I'd be happier anywhere else. And that's like, there's like this weird map, like, it's just, it was strange. I like hated it and I loved it. And I think like in the end, I think I met the, the, like the best people for me at U of T. Like I think I found the right, the right communities and the right people. And that was really great. Academically, maybe that at times where it was lacking for me in certain ways but otherwise I think and like I think there are certain things like I don't know I think I was lucky to be around certain people and like within Vic at a certain time and then sort of out of it at another time and yeah it sort of worked out in its own little weird way 
Yeah. Were there ever any other universities that you were looking at that you could have gone to other than U of T? I was about to transfer to UBC after my second month at U of T. Oh, really? Yeah, I really wanted to go to Vancouver. And now, like, I look back and I sort of laugh. I'm like, I'm such a Toronto kid. Like, yeah. <laughs> like Vancouver looks stunning. But it's definitely not the pace, I think, for me. Yeah. Which is funny because, like, I'm in Copenhagen, which is a significantly slower pace than Toronto is. But I think, I think <clears throat> Vancouver has its just own vibe. And I feel like it's... I lived in Denver for a bit. And I think it's quite similar to Denver. And I didn't mind Denver. And I liked the people there. But it, there was just... There was something missing. I almost felt like I had to be, like, above the age of 30 or 35. Like, young vitality, but still had money. Sort of yeah. the vibe I get from Vancouver. So I'm kind of glad I didn't end up doing that. Yeah. So. And you wouldn't have seen all the shows and concerts that you ended up seeing in Toronto. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how big the music scene is in Vancouver. Yeah. Like, what is it? Like, I think we were so lucky that we got to see like peak Toronto. We saw peak Toronto, basically. Like my first years of undergrad were peak Toronto. Yeah, I think that Toronto has changed so much since then in ways that I like sometimes don't really recognize. And I just sort of have these like, I almost feel like those really typical guys like, oh, yeah, like I was in before like Toronto was cool. Or like, oh, yeah, those are the days when you can go to like CBGBs and see a show for yeah. like $5. I'm like, oh, God, I've become that pretentious now. But it really was just like my second year, especially when I was able to like you know, when I was legal and able to actually go and see more things, that was just, wow, that was, I, yeah, I remember seeing Sleater, Kenny, and St. Vincent in, like, back-to-back days. Amazing. Like, it was insane. There, It was insane. Where'd you see them? I saw Sleater, Kenny at what was then Sad Academy, is now Re- the Rebel, which was, oh, like, rest not, in peace. rest in peace, Sound Academy. It was, like, not, honestly, wasn't as horrible a venue as I thought it would be. It's just really oh, out I of the hate, way. I hate Sound Academy. I like I understand why people hate it, but I don't know. There what other there's a venue I hated more. I my my problem was. with the Sound Academy is their the layout was always weird. It was flat. Uh if you were in the back you couldn't see the stage. Um and yeah. it was in this weird L shape at the back. There yeah. was like a little outcropping. So if you were on the outside, like, edge of the L, you wouldn't have been able to see the stage. Um, yeah, I had that problem when I went to see Broken Social Scene uh, back in 2010, and then Chance the Rapper back in, uh, I want to say, 2012. Um, and it was, you know, I, I just didn't like it. And then the other problem is with the Sound Academy is there's only one bridge to get there. So it creates oh, yeah. this oh, yeah. gigantic chokehold that no one can get in or out. Yeah, I, re- I think I distinctly remember, I think I walked back after that show, and it was like March or something. Or was it? No, maybe I'm thinking of another. I think I'm thinking of a different show. I'm not entirely sure. But I think, I'm trying to think like what, there was definitely another venue in Toronto that I hated significantly more than Sound Academy that made Sound Academy significantly more tolerable. And I can't remember which one it was. It's definitely, I don't think it functions anymore, that's for sure. But, man, Toronto had so many, like, random venues, too. And they're all just, like, rest in peace. They're all gone. Like, I remember, 
no, I think Double Double M might still be open. It's just named something else. Uh, Soy Bomb? I'm not sure about that. Soy Bomb? No, Soy Bomb's elsewhere. Soy Bomb is like, Soy Bomb's gone. Chibi Jeebies is gone. Um, what was that place on? Oh, Parts and Labor? No, I don't know if Parts and Labor closed. I think they I think... just rebranded. Oh, they rebranded. That is true. They, yeah. they did rebrand. Um, What's cool that house? place? Cool House, yeah. Um, what's that place on, I want to say, King and Bathurst? And it was this just sort of like second floor slash rooftop venue where it'd be like all sort of punk bands and there was like a like a skateboard half pipe in it. Oh my god, I don't even think I went to that venue. Is Adelaide Hall still open? Sorry? Is that, was that one Adelaide, Adelaide Hall? No, so Adelaide Hall also Adelaide. renovated. Also renovated, okay. Yeah, um, Adelaide Hall is between University and Spadina on yeah, Adelaide. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. I didn't. I've actually not been to the one in King of Bathurst. Like, yeah. Adelaide been. Hall was beautiful, or was beautiful. I want to say was beautiful because yeah. it had like an upstairs balcony, and I saw Kevin Drew there when he did yeah. uh, Darlings. I know oh, you yeah. wrote a yeah you wrote an album review on that uh, that yeah, album, so we'll TV. talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, Bad Bad Not Good, I saw. Um, it was this really cool balcony that kind of wrapped around the whole venue. But now they closed off the ceiling and it's just one small little uh, room with a little bit of a pit, kind of like uh, uh, Lee's Palace. Um, but, you know, rest in peace, that balcony. It was a really cool venue. Yeah. Uh man even i think what was it there's the great hall but that's rebranded as the the like longboat or something yeah yeah that was that's still i do like that venue actually i think it's a pretty underrated venue but i don't know how, like the problem is that like a lot of those smaller venues like north by used to do a bunch of shows in those small venues and now it's just like harder to see places like it's harder to see shows just like that outside yeah. of a festival roster like the only festival that i think is still doing that is like wavelength yeah and that's 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 about it like there are very few festivals in the city that are doing that like it seems like every single fe- festival of the city just shut down this year yeah i know uh north by northeast just i mean the last couple of years have just been rough for them um <laughs> i don't know i don't know what they're doing uh canadian music week has also rebranded um yeah. and i think they've stopped doing a lot of the small venues but yeah there's not been a lot of the showcases and it's all yeah but even when they did the showcases they put things that i think i did a review of one of the shows and like they put things in like weird times and really like inaccept like i remember i went to a parts and labor show on like a monday night or something and i'm like this is a whole, like if you're trying to showcase new artists why are you putting them like in like bumfuck nowhere not bumfuck nowhere like it wasn't that far out but if it's a monday night like you're gonna not it's very i think it was like at a time when people not that many people were living in like ge- well gentrifying parkdale in quotation marks so i think that it was a bit out of the way for people but i don't know it was strange it yeah was strange. i know like concerts on a monday night is just weird yeah like unless you're like a bigger artist like you can like if you're a bigger artist you can sort of get away with that i think but if you're like an up-and-coming i just think that it's so 
difficult. I think I I think everyone wants the primetime slots of like Friday, Saturday. But I feel like those really should be saved for like smaller town artists who really like smaller town, but like smaller, lesser known artists to at least be able to showcase to a crowd that actually wants to be out as opposed yeah. to like people who've had to like actively choose that oh I want to come to this and there is like a charm in that don't get me wrong like I'm not here to diminish that but when I was working nine to five I was like exhausted most of the time that I wouldn't really go out go out of my way to go to a show unless I knew that it was going to be good or my friends were going to be there so it's just yeah I'm yeah, for sure. I'm a very yeah. I become also a very lazy adult, so there's also a <laughs> big part in that. But yeah. I guess one of the one of the things is that like small bands will take whatever shows are available to them, you know, especially in like a like a nice okay. venue. Like I uh, uh, do. You, have you read or heard of the book "Meet Me in the Bathroom"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm reading it right now, and it's a it's it's such a cool book to to. Um, to read about, you know, the rise of the Strokes and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and Interpol. And, like, the Strokes, their original ambition was to just get a show at the Mercury Lounge. They completely, like, blasted past that. But just, like, this ambition of wanting to get uh, a particular show, at like, just any show on any day at, like, a nice venue that will yeah. kind of propel them to to just like a little bit more popularity, you know? Like, yeah. would you, if you were a small band, would you take a Monday night slot at um, the, uh, Dakota or uh, Horseshoe Tavern, you know, where like bigger bands have played there and have, you know, kind of gained some popularity of from those venues, right? Yeah, but I think also, I think this is also a huge part of, like, I think it's also really connected to, like, the identity of the city. Like, I think with, like, New York, people look, and I don't know if it's maybe, like, in the time period of, like, when the strokes are becoming more popular, but you sort of have the, I think in New York, it's more common for people to be, like, oh, like, this venue showcases, like, really good artists that do stuff like X, Y, and Z. Like, we have, like, there are a couple of venues like that in Copenhagen as well. Um... But Copenhagen, like, Copenhagen should be an example because since it's such a, like, since it is a significantly smaller city, most of the things happen on, like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But in a, in a place like Toronto, I feel like it's not as small as Copenhagen to restrict things to the weekend, but it's also not as big as New York City to have a sort of culture of, like, let's go to a show on a Monday night. Like, there isn't that same... I find that maybe... And maybe this has, like, changed, maybe, like, my perception of the way it's changed over the years, and maybe that's incorrect, but I feel like people maybe don't, I never, as someone who was really interested in music, was like, I'm going to go to the Horseshoe Tavern on a Monday night and see this up-and-coming band. Like, yeah, maybe that, yeah. that makes me sound a bit like an asshole, but, and I think in, I would like to be that person, but realistically, I'm usually like, if this smaller ch- band is doing something on a Thursday night, and is like at a bar that I happen to be at, I think I'm more likely to hear them than if they were playing at the Horseshoe on a Monday night. And yeah, I think it's for really sure. Difficult. And I think, it, to be honest, I think it's such a difficult scene to be in in Toronto as a like a small, like a smaller, lesser known band in quotation marks, because I think also the music 
music interest and the music scene has changed a lot, especially within the last five years. Like, for example, like I feel like popularity has shifted to other genres, which I don't think is necessarily a good or a bad thing. And I think that also there's just a different culture of the way that people go out and see music in Toronto now, I feel. I feel yeah. like for a while it was really about like festivals sort of nudging people to different places. And I think now it's, to be honest, I just think there's a lot less happening. That's always sort of been my vibe. Like the last year I lived in Toronto, I don't, I don't know if it's because I sort of tapped out a little bit, but I found it very difficult to find smaller things the way that I was able to in like 2014. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And I like, part of it, I think, is the rise of Indie 88 um, and also festival troubles, you know, uh, yeah. Field Trip, um, Way Home, North yeah. by Northeast, Canadian Music Week. They're all struggling and they don't know they what to do with their sort of identity. And I think that that, you know, heyday of festivals bringing, you know, up and coming artists uh, kind of to the forefront has kind of um, uh, dissipated. I'm not going to say, um, I'm not going to say that it's it's completely gone, but I think it's it's a little bit on hiatus. I think the music scene in in Toronto has just, they're, they're in like a big shakeup um, and the big players, uh, you know, like Embrace and um, collective concerts and uh, um, what's his name, Jeff Cohen with collective yeah. concerts. Um, you know, they're trying to figure things out, arts and crafts, all the big labels, all the big, all the venues, they're trying to figure things out. And I don't think they've they've got it as, as you know, as, uh, as down pat as it was maybe a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah. they're still, they're still trying to figure it out, especially with like financial troubles, right? And that's why a lot of these festivals have um, have you know struggled. It's because of financial troubles, right? Yeah, and I also wondered, and this might be a very like a nuanced way to look at it, but I also wonder if it's as a result of like the genre shift that we've seen in like popular music and culture and whatnot, where like for, I find myself listening to way more hip hop than I did in 2014. Not to say I didn't like hip hop in 2014, but I think that that genre has really grown past. And I think a lot of these like collective concerts, arts, like arts and crafts, they've really depended on in like indie music and by like indie music, more like indie rock as something that has been like the driving force of the way that they've organized and sort of curated events. And I think Field Trip, for example, has done a good job of trying to like bring in more genres. But I think that a huge a huge identity crisis I think within that is also trying to encompass this like not new genre but newly more popular like popularized as if hip-hop is you know not older like not older whatever but like I think there's just a different there has been a huge shift in the way that people listen to music and the genres that they're predominantly listening to like I don't think people in 2014 would have thought that hip-hop and country are the two genres that we're talking about more of today than, you know, say, indie rock. Like, to be honest, I really don't think that indie rock has had the same popularity within the last two, maybe even three years. Like, you have, like, the same sort of artists that have, like, their legendary status, like Bonnie Iver and, like, the national and broken social scene. And, you know, they're the ones who are sort of reattracting their fans. But you even see artists that are sort of 
moving like not moving away from that but other artists that are just gaining more popularity and you have more like undercover rappers for example that are like seeing their rise to the top more so than say like the indie rock artist would have had in that was sort of parallel to what the indie rock artist would have had is like it maybe like five years ago or something so I think that there's also just like a cultural shift in music I think that people are looking for different kinds of music and I think that when you have festivals like um I think like North by really did a really good job of mixing genres but they sort of were starting to go downhill before the like before the rise of popularity and hip-hop so I guess they didn't really get to capitalize on that and I think with Field Trip, most of the people, like the ma- vast majority of the people on their label are, I would argue, a little bit more indie rock, maybe pop. And like, so there's still this sort of like, Toronto has always been sort of like a hub for indie rock. So I think now that it's like, people are looking for hip hop. And even though Toronto has like Drake, that sort of drives this like hip hop movement. I think that it's been hard culturally, I think for music curators and people who like, run festivals to sort of like shift course and be looking in other places for up and coming artists. And I wonder if maybe there's like, and I don't, I really don't know this, this isn't coming from a place of like objectivity, but I wonder if there's maybe like a representation problem in music that sort of exists within that. And maybe that's like an underlying issue of why, you know, maybe curation isn't reflecting what people want anymore. And maybe that's, a result of representation for example I don't know there could be a lot of questions I just I think I think about the genre shift a lot because I really do I really think that indie rock has lost a lot of its popularity and that was what was really driving a lot of Toronto music for quite some time and the closing of venues like punk venues and stuff like that sort of like closed the opportunity for other genres to sort of grow in an underground scene and it's just so it's just a combination of so many different things it's ridiculous like uh i feel like i feel like the toronto music scene has just gone through so much in the last couple of years and a lot of that is as a result of policy issues cultural changes and like just i guess growing economic strains as well like that's always been a big thing and that's also been like a big problem i think within arts maybe yeah. in canada i think in canada especially that was very long-winded <laughs> i don't know if we got anything out of that no no that was that was really interesting hey maybe in a couple of years you and i can co-author a book that talks about indie rock and the change in the music scene in toronto i think it would be really interesting to just kind of do like an oral history of um, the changing, like the changing culture, the changing music culture in Toronto. I mean, if for exactly the same factors that that you talked about, um, kind of capturing this moment of Toronto um, in like an oral history. I think that'd be interesting. It, maybe let's yeah. let's talk about it in a few years. Maybe we'll call up yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. But, that'd, be um, sick. that'd be sick. Yeah. Uh, we're twenty minutes in. Uh, yeah. I haven't done this yet, um, so I need to roll back <laughs> and do this. Uh, we, I just want to do a land acknowledgement because yeah. you know I'm in Toronto. You might be in Copenhagen, but you have a connection to Toronto. You've been here. Yeah. You've lived in Toronto, and yeah. I think we need to just acknowledge the land that uh, you know I'm on that that you lived in before. Um, yeah. That uh, many Indigenous nations, Indigenous peoples, have lived on this land. 
the Mississaugas of the Prairie River, the Anishinaabeg, uh, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, um, and the Huron-Wendat, um, among many other Indigenous peoples who have come uh, to visit this this place, this land, uh, to trade, to um, to uh, to fish, to hunt. Um, you know, it, this was a meeting place for so many Indigenous peoples. And even today, Toronto is still home to a lot of Indigenous peoples, um, Métis people and Inuit people, and they are facing their own challenges. Um, and, you know, we as a society um, have to try and combat this uh, colonialism, this colonial mindset that we've uh, we've ingrained in ourselves and try and, you know, help things and and do our best to really reconcile, um, you know, our relationship, uh, our treaties with with Indigenous peoples. So I think I, I ask this question of every person that comes on this show, and I, I'm going to keep asking it, which is, um, what role do you think we play in reconciliation? You know, obviously you're not in uh, you're not in Toronto right now, but you've lived here. This was you know a home to you. Um, and you are still tied to this land. So um, I guess, you know, what what can we do? Uh, what is our role to play in reconciliation? Yeah, I think it's also interesting to note that, like, for example, like Denmark has their own indigenous peoples on Greenland. So, like, there's also sort of like this connection to reconciliation that could very well be happening here. But I think the discussions here are very different, like making sure Trump doesn't buy Greenland. Um, yeah. But back to the back back to the question. Um, I think our role really is about making space for reconciliation, but also really making it a priority. And I think that I've always sort of battled with understanding where have like I've had a role in reconciliation. Definitely not. Like I don't think I've been someone who has made um, like. And this is a, a self critique. Of, I don't think I've really made an effort to be sort of a part of that reconciliation, but I also think it really requires us to like almost create a way to create space in a way that we can sort of self-critique ourselves and try to unlearn so much of so many like oppressive actions and thoughts that we've had that have been directed towards indigenous people, whether intentional or not, um, and try to understand what does reconciliation mean to them and what can we do to facilitate that and really trying to find a balance of like, we're gonna be here and assist this because you were also like, you, you are the original population of this country and we've come and pretty much been absolutely horrible to you how do we reconcile this but also like how do we collaborate like how do we create something that can be better and I think that requires this sort of finding a balance between like we're absolutely god for like we are not going to be the white savior like this is absolutely not our role but also how do we use the power and privilege that we have in order to facilitate any sort of reconciliation and I also even wonder if like we need to change the word reconciliation because I think now it's become such a, like a, a oh God, why am I losing the word for this? But like it's, a become such a, it's become such a buzzword, especially in politics and especially by politicians. And I think that's where we need to just sort of like 
almost start fresh being like it's reconciliation but we're gonna call it something else and we're gonna actually act as like completely differently than we have in the past and like our role is really making sure that reconciliation is action and that it's not just us sitting in a room saying we're going to actually like, oh yeah, we're going to do this. And then shaking hands, having a photo op and then leaving. And I think that's sort of our role. I think it's very distinctly like facilitating and pushing for the political will to like make reconciliation happen because there are also a lot of basic, like, you know, we can go on for hours and days and years about the things that we've done wrong and the things that we need to do. But when it comes down to it, we need to make it a priority. And if we don't make it a priority, then it's not going to happen. And I think that's sort of our role. It's making it a priority and creating the space. Right. And and I think, um, you know, I, I keep I keep hearing about this concept and I, I you know, really latch on to this concept of we are all treaty peoples um, yeah. and we need to start thinking of um, our relationship with Indigenous peoples on a um, nation-to-nation basis, on building yeah. relationships and, um, you know, uh, um, really you know building building on these relationships and uh you know again not white savior sort of thing but um helping to rebuild that connection with them um you know help them kind of you, you know the two row wampum belt you know two parallel lines that uh coexist next to each other um and we share the land, we share the resources. Mm-hmm. I think that that is really, you know, uh, a concept that I latch onto, and that's that's something that I try to live by in my relationship to Indigenous peoples. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's a good way of looking at it. Okay, so um, I kind of I I wanted to kind of Google you up again, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, just to see what I can find about you. You know, obviously we went to, um, we did demo music magazine with each other. Uh, we talked music with each other. We just talked 20 more minutes about the music scene in Toronto. And I'm sure there's more time to talk about uh, music. Um, obviously broken social scene, we both love. Uh, so we can talk about that. But I know you're doing your master's at Copenhagen at uh, the University of Copenhagen. Yeah. Um, you you did some really interesting things. Um, you were in Mississauga. You did. Uh, you were at Mentor College. Um, I saw those science projects where you use Comic Sans. Um, Comic Sans forever, man. Yeah. I know. And you had some. <laughs> <laughs> you had some really interesting experiences that I I saw. Um, you helped out on Alex, uh, Alexandro Casio Cortez's campaign. You helped out with Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. Um, you did an internship at Mass LBP. Uh, for all those who don't know, that's a nonprofit organization that um, works with deliberative democracy. Uh, I interviewed for their internship and unfortunately didn't get it. But um, you know, that's an amazing experience that that you've gone through. Um, Elections Ontario, you worked for. Um, you've been in this sort of political um, democratic space, and I, you know, I think that's that's super interesting. Um, and then I also found out that you were an actress, uh, just a small role yes. <laughs> on Green Gable Fables, and that's something I did not know before this. Um, so, you know, I, I I threw all these experiences at you. Um, 
I want to ask this. This is the main question of this podcast is what is your story? Um, you can answer it however you like. Uh, tell me what you do, um, where you came from, what are your interests? What is your aspirations? What are your dreams? Um, what do you like? Uh, just anything to answer. What is your story? Obviously, um, you know, you can leave things out. You can share whatever you want. Uh, this question is this this question and answer is really up to you. So, you know, what is your story? That's a good existential question one can ask me. Um, so we'll we'll start with the the basics. Um, born and raised Toronto GTA. Uh, grew up in Scarborough, then moved to Mississauga. Very interesting time. Two immigrant parents. The true like GTA story. Who immigrated from the Middle East. So grew up with uh, two very motivated, intelligent people who motivated me maybe like a bit too much, like definitely mm-hmm. entrenched this. Like, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, this, I like, do know. Like, that insatiable ambition to like make your parents proud, but also like show that like, you know, you know, Im- you know, I don't know. Uh, and um, so I grew up. I grew up really loving art, but I also developed an interest in politics. And I feel like that is definitely tied to my background in the sense of like I had family come from the Middle East and being like a post 9-11 child in North America and growing up in a Muslim family was definitely very politicizing for me. And I think I was always very interested in like why you know, why George W. Bush got elected and why he got reelected and why, you know, the Iraq war had to happen and like why certain things in the world were happening. And I remember, oh my God, this is going to make me sound like so, like this is make me sound very pretentious, but I think it, it does really encompass the political nerd in me. I was like following Obama getting elected in 2008. And that was sort of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me in politics. I became absolutely obsessed. With America. I think, yeah, I think everyone <laughs> was obsessed with yeah. following Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. Oh, absolutely. But I remember watching, like, the Iowa caucus was on my mom's birthday, and I put a reminder on my phone to watch the Iowa caucus on CNN. Like, it was obsessive. It was a problem. I was like, I am 12. I should probably not be, <laughs> probably be enjoying other things. But there was that, and I think I always liked politics but I always want to steer clear of it, funny enough. As much as I really liked it and had an interest in it, I always found it to be very stressful. And there was a lot of negativity, I think, within politics that I didn't particularly like. And that's why I always sort of was drawn to art, which is why I've done a bunch of random things. Like, I I remember I was a drama kid in elementary school. And then when I came to high school, I I auditioned for every single play I could and didn't get into any of them. Oh, that sucks. That did suck. That ended my acting career. That, which was, you know, <laughs> well, I didn't, well, I had one role. So that was, you know, that was the acting career. Um, but I did mock trial. So that was, and that was really nice. For the longest time, I sort of was like, you know what? I'm just going to become a lawyer. Like, I'm going to work with the law. And, um, and I, I don't know. I think when I went to university, I sort of realized after second year that wanting to be a lawyer, like, this isn't, I'll preface by saying this is not reflective of anyone becoming a lawyer. This was a very personal experience for me. Me wanting to become a lawyer made me a shitty person. 
because I was only thinking about this thing and I kind of forgot, lost sight of why I wanted to become a lawyer and I wanted to become a lawyer to help people. And I completely lost sight of that in me trying to become one in the sense of I was just always focused on school. I was like really like not taking care of myself and really just like uber motivated to a point where I was very competitive and decided that that's not why I wanted to go into law. And that's, and I was like, okay, I realized I want to help people. So I was like, well, I don't need a law degree to do that. I, I don't need any degree to do that. So I went on exchange to Copenhagen in my third year and sort of was like, okay, I'm just going to figure it out while I'm here. I'm just going to figure out what the hell I'm going to do while I'm here. I don't know why I decided that I was going to figure that out in Denmark of all places, but it happened. And I came back, I met, I ended up becoming really good friends who I'm still really good friends with. Um, one of my professors who taught American politics and she set me up to work on the Clinton campaign because I'd always been obsessed with American campaigns. And since who was the professor? Maybe I know her. May, uh, she's, uh, she's Danish. She's, at, U, um, at U of T? Uh, no, 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 at, at, in Copenhagen. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, not, no, I, no, not at U of T. Um, yeah, so she is, like, an American expert here and does a lot of really cool things. But anyway, went, went to, went on this campaign and discovered that I really love campaigning which is um, not the best thing to love because you do really horrible things to your body. You never get any sleep. You don't take care of yourself and uh, you can lose. And that does take a toll on you. Yeah. But I loved it, but I loved it. it. Like I hated it, but I loved it. Like I loved being around. I learned so much about myself and about politics, like more than I had in some of my political science classes, like in a month, like in this, I spent like a month there in the summer when I got back from Copenhagen and then um, I went back for get out the vote efforts right before the election. And I, it was probably one of the more pivotal experiences in my career. And like personally also as well, because I discovered sort of like both a strength in me, but also this love to, of like trying to organize communities and like the democratic process and trying to protect, but also like, push for changes in the democratic process and I think that's sort of led to where I am today and why I've stuck in politics no matter how many times I've tried to leave politics I've always sort of been reeled back in and yeah but I think within all of it I think art was always sort of what I went back to like especially music which is why I wrote for a demo and why I like gone to so many shows that was just sort of always the my sanity like that was just what I I always needed an escape and music was always always my escape like I've played a I don't play them well, but I do play a handful of instruments horribly, horribly. <laughs> but I do know how to play them. So that's, that's my claim to fame here. And <laughs> really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed like my music classes in high school and I like miss them dearly in university, but it was nice to have demo because that was just like my, my, my music geek haven. It was great. And yeah. It was just like a, so it was like a haven of like, kind of like-minded people who just wanted to talk music, you know, like just music geeks um, who wanted to talk about the newest releases and um, music history and all that sort of stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It was just so nice to be around people who maybe they didn't like the same, well, you and I like the same kind of music, but, and a lot of people, for, for the most part, we always had like a thread sort of connecting all of us, but it was so nice being around people who were like-minded, but still, had like diverse interests 
And that was something I think I struggled to find within like my program at U of T and in certain spaces. And it was just so nice to like come to a space where I was like, ah, this is my pe. These are my people. It yeah. was just so nice. And like from first year, it was uh, it was amazing. It's still like we're still. I think you were. Are you still in the Facebook group? I am still on the Facebook group. Yeah. But they so just sweet. changed the web page, so oh, all yeah. of all my, my previous articles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think someone had commented on it or whatever. Oh no, I think I saw. Yeah. No. CD. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, that was that was rough. That's a lot of yeah. history gone. Yeah, rest in peace, my previous articles. Yeah, rest in peace. Rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. Have you have you kept any of your magazine articles? I kept the ish I kept the hard issues. I think I yeah. may have I created like five different websites for my portfolio. So I have a feeling I have some of my really old articles there. Um if I had cut copied and pasted them, but I think a lot of the times it was just running on links because that you would want to link your articles back to them. So yeah, yeah. Would, I found your WordPress and it had excerpts from you wrote like a retrospective on your uh, your interest on in broken social scene, um, yeah. a review on Kevin Drew's Darlings. Um, you did a review on uh, St. Vincent. Um, I forgot what the, the album is, but it's the one where she's sitting down. Um, oh, you did on, yeah, you did uh, reviews on those and there were excerpts, but uh, the links just uh, were dead and uh, they didn't go to anything, which is really, really sad. I, I kind of wanted to keep some of my old reviews. Yeah, same here. Maybe they might be somewhere. I have a feeling they're archived. They might be yeah. in like Hard House archives or something. I'm not sure. Or Wayback yeah, Machine. I mean, I... We can... Yeah, Wayback Machine. Ooh, that's smart. Yeah. Yeah, let's try that. Okay, we're gonna try that after this. We're gonna yeah, we're, we're gonna see that. if we can find their her stuff on Wayback yeah. Machine. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But yeah, I think it's yeah. like a very that was a very fast way of getting through like who I am and some excerpts, some tasters, some teasers here and there about my life. And now I'm here, and um, yeah, I, I didn't think to be honest, I. I I didn't know what I was going to do. I just sort of knew that I was going to live somewhere else at one point. I just didn't think it would be Copenhagen. That was very random. Yeah. It was completely random. <laughs> no, so, so. so, you know, I there's this thing about politics that I always, have, I've always felt about this sort of cycle between um, cynicism and optimism, idealism. You know, there was... There's a cynicism of House of Cards versus the optimism of The West Wing. And I'm pretty sure you have seen both of those series and, yeah. and you are very interested in both of those. I, I love both of those, definitely more The West Wing. Um, but I guess, like, what values draws you to politics? Do you feel jaded about it? Do you feel um, optimistic about it? Um, you know, what, what values draw you to politics? I think that when it comes down to it, there, I feel like as like, hmm, this is a good question. I'm going to, I'm going to think about this for a moment, but I think it's like a combination. I think it really depends. Like when I was in New York with the Casio, I felt optimism. 
because I met her and she was exactly what you would expect. And that was like, I don't always get to meet the candidates I work for, just a heads up. And um, and she was really like, she she was great. And like now the work that she's doing in the house and really just pushing for pretty much every single platform point she's had, I think that she just represents the kind of politician that people should aspire to and honestly should expect in many ways because she is representing the issues of like the, she is representing the priorities of her constituency. And then I also had that optimism with Michael Chong. I worked with, I crossed party lines and worked with him during the leadership race. Yeah, I wanted to work who, with Michael Chong. Right, you should have told me. Anyway, yeah. that's, lo- that's long lost. You probably could still, but anyway. Um, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about that later. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I worked with him because I just, I thought that in all honesty, our political system, our political system, like our electoral system is dreadful. It's so dreadful. And it's so dreadful in the sense that it's just beyond representative of what people vote for and what, and the proportions. It's just, it's an absolute mess. And yeah. I thought that a man like Michael Chong should be a leader because he would actually prove as like very productive opposition to Trudeau in a way that would push her to either keep certain promises or ask him why he didn't keep other ones, for example, in a very productive way, not in a very like partisan, I just want to get you because you're the opponent sort of way. And that's the kind of like that sort of partisanship is what makes me jaded about politics, that that way of not being able to set, you know, party differences aside and actually do what's good for you know, your constituency and for the country. Like, that is the sort of politics that I sort of, like, see in, like, the West Wing. And I'm like, yeah. I know it exists. And, exi- and it exists amongst politicians. Like, I've met a handful of politicians who really do exemplify that. It's not dead by any means. But I think that if you're a voter, I understand why you hate politicians. Like, a lot of them, to be honest, like, to, are not you know what they say they are or they don't advocate for community or for community issues or if you know they don't represent their constituency and they really are there to get reelected and that and that's sad like yeah. i think that politician has replaced the title of public servant and i think there's this like loss of the idea of the public servant but i think that this is where i like i have a lot of hope for our generation actually cuz i feel like with the internet and social media as much as it has brought rise to some really extreme views, it's also brought rise to the ability and tools for smaller candidates to gain visibility and traction for ways in which people can organize and talk about issues. And I think that, you know, with while there is a lot of bad, I think the bad was always there. I think the more good is coming out of it. And maybe I'll change my mind tomorrow about that. Like, who knows? But I like to think that... <laughs> There, yeah, I, I definitely go back and forth on this one, but I definitely think there is a lot of opportunity in it in the way that someone like Ocasio was able to come on top. And yeah. I don't think that could have happened without social media, to be honest. Or And like and grassroots organizing. Like, it's not just one thing. It also has to be the other. And that was the same with Obama. Like, the, like these, like, that's the only, that's one of the only ways that could have happened. And you didn't really see movements like that in the United States since, like, the 60s. Like, in the same way. Like, of course, there were other mini-movements. This is not to diminish movements in other ways. But 
Yeah. Um, yeah, for off sure. Top of my, off the top of my head, off the top of my head. I could objectively hmm. leave in the comments below. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> um, so I think in that way, I'm, I am definitely, I definitely lean on more optimistic, but I think when it comes to like the Canadian context, I hate it. I hate being like the, like very New York Timesy and very like journalisty and say like, Oh, like look to Denmark on this, but there is a thing that Denmark is right in their electoral system. And there's like an emphasis on collaboration and that governments cannot form governments without collaborating with other parties. Oh, minority governments really, you know, I really wish there were more minority governments. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the problem is the coalition has, has had such a dirty word, especially since like Stefan Dion was leader. Yeah. And it's like, why? Like, why? Like everyone's just fighting. Like nothing is going to get, we can't be innovative and we can't push the policy we want if people are just going to be bickering because they don't like that the person is from another party. And I, Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's not to say not like not all MPs work together on bills and they don't work across party lines. This isn't the case, but there aren't, there is enough of that. And with an electoral system like ours, as long as we are unable to vote for the repres, like unable to vote, for representatives in a way that genuinely represents us, we sort of need to depend on po- politicians a little bit when it comes to the policy making in being able to set their party views aside in order to actually push for something. But that's not going to happen because the electoral system really does benefit the two major parties, the li- like liberals and conservatives. Um, and it's going to be very difficult to change that unless there's something like a grassroots movement that's really going to push that. And there have been like quite a few movements that have been pushing that. It's just, it might take a little bit more time for it to be like very urgent. So that's also a bit disappointing in some way. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree with everything you just said. I saw Michael Chong uh, speak on a panel with uh, funny enough, Katrina, uh, Karina Gold, uh, minister of democratic institutions hosted by Samara Canada. Uh, shout out Samara Canada for all of the great work that they do. Yeah, um, yeah um, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. In 2015, uh, the Liberals uh, took, you know, 39, I think 39% of the popular vote and ended up with a majority of like 50 plus, you know, 59% or something like that of, uh, of seats in the, the House of Commons. And I think there really needs to be this change in um, parliament and how we see parliament, you know, uh, parliamentary supremacy, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think Michael Chong, I've, I've always really loved Michael Chong for, um, you know, championing the idea of, uh, of strong, independent members of parliament who, you know, have their own views and won't be um won't be punished for um you know going against the party lines or having different views obviously there's a thing with parties um uh holding holding the line on particular um values i, I mean um what what was weird the story today was uh elizabeth may um is letting some of her green party candidates uh, support Quebec separatism or um, wanting to open up the abortion debate. You know, I think there are certain times when the party should be able to dictate um, certain values. But I believe in the idea of MPs being strong, independent, having their own opinions, and 
willing to act on those opinions. And you know, I've I've talked um, I've talked to some people in the the party mechanisms, and I've been turned off. Um, I was a part of the Liberal Party, and I've been turned off by by the idea of um, of being part of a party because um, they you know they keep saying this thing that yeah you know MPs and and regular uh, citizens have the chance to you know to participate in democracy. You know, MPs can have their say in in committees, and citizens can have their say in uh, liberal party conventions or uh, party nominations. But like when you really get into it, citizens have a really hard time getting involved in politics because the parties make it so difficult for them to get involved in conventions and get involved in party nominations. Um, you know, the parties make it so difficult for uh, members to participate in committee and really offer up their own opinions in committee, you know. Um, there's just so much that needs to be changed. And, you know, as much as there's chaos right now in Britain for Brexit, I actually really love that members of the Conservative Party are voting against uh, voting against uh, Boris Johnson and before uh, before him, um, uh, Theresa May, you know, voting against their party because that is a sign that MPs are, you know, independent and willing to voice their own opinions and represent their constituents and not just their parties, you know? Absolutely. And I think it's just, and I don't know if it's our, okay, I I feel like I do know that it is our political culture, but I think that things, there's sort of like a two-prong answer that I have to this. I think I'm going to first start off by talking about like the party mechanisms. The I think the only way that we can change the party mechanisms is to either like change the way that we regulate parties. So in a sense, like you have to pay to be part of like members of certain parties. And once you like the only way I got involved with the conservative party was by knowing people. And I know when I worked, the first campaign I ever worked for was actually with the liberal party. And I knew that a lot of the interns who had worked with the liberal party had also known someone who got that. And that's not uncommon in politics. I'm not here to say someone is X, Y, or Z, but the thing is that it's very difficult to get involved with those parties in a particular capacity unless you know someone, period. And that's kind of a problem because if you are going to make decisions as a party and not bring people who may have not, you know, spent their time in, you know, um, U of T liberals or U of T conservatives or like, you know, young liberals from high school or like had happened to have a family member in there, it's really hard to join the party. Like, it's really hard to join the party. Like, the only reason why I ended up getting involved with Michael Chong was because I knew someone knew that I had just come out from the Clinton campaign and that I could help them out because I had some idea of how the U.S., how U.S. campaigning worked and they wanted me for strategy. But had that not happened, I wouldn't have got involved with them. To be honest, I think even though I'm involved with political science, I myself have been really turned off by the party machines because I felt both very excluded because I felt that my opinions would not be heard and they were not heard at times when I had brought them up. Maybe, and this was in an experience I won't label actually. And I also felt like there were, there was a very almost stereotypical like idea of like, I don't know, 
I think it was just not very inclusive. I don't think there was enough diversity in the kinds of people that had been brought into the party machine. And there wasn't a lot of like recruitment outside of the people that they had already had. Like, for example, with American campaigns, like I found that there was a lot more diversity in the people that were a part of the Democratic Party than there were in any of the parties that I'd worked with in Canada, to be honest, of like the kind of people like socioeconomically, education background, um, the interns were all very different and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I had to go through, I had to know someone to get onto the campaign, but for the most part, people did apply. Like there were people across the board who had worked in different levels, who worked at higher levels than me because they were definitely more deserving to do so and like all that sort of stuff. And it felt like, of course, there is a lot, there are a lot of issues with the Democratic Party. But if there's one thing I have to say is that if you want to get involved with them, you can just show up. And it was very easy to sort of like work your way up. I didn't ever feel that mobility in the same way within Canadian politics. Yeah, which is like very interesting, which is very interesting. And I think that I think definitely some of the things I can say that I've been saying can be taken in specific ways. So I'll try to clarify where I can. Um, But I think when it comes down to it, I don't think because Canadian politics is significantly less sexy than American politics, it is very difficult for us to feel as citizens that we want to really we have a space to fight for something like there is so much to fight for as a Canadian like there's so much that can be better with our country. There's so much that we can do with it. And I feel as though our political system gives us very little space to do so. And that's where like you have like the sexiness of American politics and people being like, you know what, I feel like if I join the Democratic Party, I'm going to be Trump. And you know that that's true. Like, OK, to an extent, like maybe the Democratic Party won't defeat Trump. And that's a completely different story. But you know that like when you do X, Y and Z, you are more likely to accomplish Y, whatever. In Canada, that's not the case. It's not like you are going to join the Liberal Party and you're going to get climate reform. Like that doesn't happen. It's like, oh, yeah, you're going to join, like, especially in this election, you're going to join the Liberal Party or maybe the NDP because we want to defeat Scheer or you're Scheer and you want to defeat Trudeau. But then you have like, but then you might have to think about the NDP. Like there's no, there's no way in which you as like a citizen can sort of predict where to put your energy so you feel really jaded because you either have to strategically vote by voting by your morals or voting by who who you like the least and who's going to most likely defeat them and then or you're 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 just not going to vote like I was about to not vote in the Ontario provincial election because the left split again and I was like god damn it like and I was like I'm in politics and I don't want to vote like, what does that mean for other citizens who don't have the, who don't, like, some like some people just don't have the time to have to do all this research and, like, understand what the hell is going on? Because to be honest, it's not, it's not that it's not easy, it's just not communicated particularly well. It's not communicated in a way that's motivating. And to be honest, I think our political culture is really lacking. It's lacking in a way that pr- provides a space for citizens to get involved in specific ways. And, and this is, like, and I mean this in specific di- like direction towards like party roles, not like external organizations. There are a lot of external organizations in Canada that do a really good job of motiv- motivating people to participate in democracy. But political parties should be doing that too. Why is why are we not putting more responsibility on them? And that's yeah, what sure. I found crazy. Like especially me in political science, I not once had someone come up to me and suggest that I work on a political campaign. 
Like I had to go outside and find it myself. And I'm like, why aren't you trying to motivate and persuade people and convince people? And I think that's a huge difference between like Canadian and American political cultures. Like there's this bite because people are like, it, also the political situation is like significantly different, but there's like this bite and like, oh, like we need to fight for this. In Canada, we're just like, we're not as shitty as the US. So we don't have to fight for anything. We're okay. And I think that's so much more damaging in so many yeah, ways. For sure. because it's like, you don't, you don't have the motivation to fight for anything. And it's like our political system is excluding so many, so many people. And there are a lot of parallel problems that exist in Canada as the United States, but we don't make the same kind of deal about it, whether that be excluding people because of IDs, which is like a thing in indigenous communities and representation issues. Like, thankfully we've gotten a lot better with that, but still like there, we still don't have like as many female representation like representatives in parliament, we don't have as many women of color or like men of color. Like we need more representation. Like we need it in so many different levels and whatnot and like high levels as well. And I think that there's so much we can be doing better. And as someone in politics, I just really wish that there was more, I think there are people who are really motivated. I wish our political culture had a bit more bite to it. So then it would continue yeah. to motivate people because it just, it's so like I I tap out of Canadian politics most of the time, and I'm looking at Danish politics and and American politics more than I am at Canadian politics because I sometimes feel I'm like I don't feel like as someone involved in politics I can convince someone that this is worth fighting for. Yeah, and that is a horrible thing to have. Yeah, and I think that's really the prop like the root of the problem. Yeah. Like there's no bite to innovate because we don't think our problems are that big. There's no bite yeah. to do X, Y, and Z. And I think if you're in like in a marginalized community, there it absolutely is because it's tied to your existence. But because we're not as shitty as the United States, we don't look at it as fond like as aggressively as we do, as as we yeah. should really. For sure. And I think that um, one of the things that's really missing in Canadian political culture is that there's not much debate on policy issues. You know, it really is you're voting on party loyalty or you are voting against another party. You are, as you said, voting against another, you know, uh, candidate um, because of values that you think are antithetical to yours. It's the lesser of two evils that you're voting for. And I don't think that's a that's not a good way to go by, you know, doing politics. There are some really important issues that we are dealing with. Climate change for our generation is just number one. And, you know, our our world is going to fundamentally change in the next couple of years. And the politicians that we're voting in and we're voting for aren't really talking about those issues. They're not talking to uh, specifically youth or indigenous peoples. Um, they're they're talking to uh, a particular set. Let's let's be honest, you know, a little, like little wealthier um, white uh, older generations because they know that that's the, that's the generation that will vote. Those are the populations that will go out and vote. Um, and, you know, we don't have the actual debates that we need to talk about important policy issues, you know? Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's also like maybe it's like the Canadian niceness and our like, in, like our inability to like, our like our desire not to offend like even I sometimes find myself checking myself being like oh like I'm not gonna maybe I won't call it racist I'm like no like there is a lot of racism that we need to talk about there's a lot of 
um, incompetency that we need to talk about. And there are a lot of issues that are big and they're important. And if we're not going to have politicians that believe that we need innovative policy to solve climate change or pursue reconciliation or, you know, deal with the fact that even though Canada is a multicultural society, it's still really, really racist. Like, it's the reason why the NDP right now are, like, maybe not as a, in quotation marks, feasible as, like, and that's because, like, there is deep-seated racism that can't really see a Sikh leader as a candidate. And, like, that's oh, like, yeah. the candidate. And that's something we should be talking about. Like, these are deep-seated issues. And it's, like, again, we always go back and say, we're not as bad as the United States. We're not as bad as the United States. I'm like, you know what? Like, at least they're talking about it. Like it had to be, it had to be after Trump was elected, fine. It had to be in really dire circumstances, but at least there's dialogue. Like at least people yeah. are like, oh shit, we fucked up. Like let's push for change now. And that's what, then that's why I like go back to like, we need that bite because innovative solutions aren't always going to come with such like, like to be honest, indifference. And like apathy, yeah, and it's yeah. not to say that moderation, for example, and doing things in a very polite way is wrong. You can be, you can talk about racism politely. You can talk about certain things, like of course, like there, like for example, it's not to criticize anyone or like say that oh, like being very loud about combating racism is wrong. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. And on the contrary, I think a lot of the times it is very necessary because people are literally getting killed because of other people's racism. So like, that's, that's, I'll say that right in the open, but I think that people get really emotional and like dramatic about these issues, but you can sit down and have a dialogue about them if you want to. And if you yeah. give the space to do so, and you can have this, like an edge, like an educated, constructive dialogue that doesn't need to be emotional. That doesn't need to involve yelling about political issues. And then maybe if politicians sort of realize that you can do so, without partisan boundaries, without certain things that maybe we would move forward as a country instead of being very stagnated, because right now we're stagnated. We're not, we haven't done anything innovative in the last while. We haven't yeah. like yep. really pushed for any innovative policy. In the, I can't remember the last time, maybe under Paul Martin, when he did some regulation of the banks that like saved our assets during the financial crisis. Like maybe that was the last innovative policy that Canada had. Like I can't think of, maybe there was, Maybe I'm missing some. I completely acknowledge that, yeah. but legalizing yeah. same-sex marriage. Yeah, but like also, for example, like people would say maybe legalizing marijuana was innovative, but it's still like it's a mess. Like the way that it was done was also arguably a mess, and I think that it, to, to be honest, it was like very difficult for marginalized communities and like those who were arrested on drug charges, who were predominantly people of color. And suddenly it was like, but anyway, there are like, there are a lot of things we can talk about in regards yeah. to that, that I maybe don't have the expertise on. Um, and even but, if, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I was done. Yeah. I mean, like, even with marijuana being legalized in people in marginalized communities, especially people of color are still going to be targeted um, and seen as drug users, you know, and that is just the unfortunate reality of of the society that we live in, a very racist society. And you know, the most ridiculous story that I've heard so far in this election campaign, I mean, the, the writs have just been issued, not dropped. Um, the, the writs have just been yeah. issued. Yeah. Um, 
people, NDP candidates are jumping ship to move over to the Green Party or refusing to run for the NDP. And they'll say, they'll say, oh, it's because the NDP has no chance of winning. Um, why would I run for the NDP if there's no chance of winning? But let's be completely honest. How much of a factor is it that Jagmeet Singh is a Sikh, um, that he is a person of color, and people yeah. are people are thinking the NDP won't be able to win with a person of color as their leader, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I th- it's so funny. It's ridiculous. I thoroughly, I, I like the, I like Elizabeth May, and I like have a lot of respect for the Green Party, but I don't like strategically, like objectively, the NDP could have won the last election had it not been for a variety of mistakes that had occurred and like certain campaign strategies that the Liberals had pulled in the last two weeks of the campaign. So I'm surprised that they're like it, and it sort of like adds to like how ridiculous it is that they're jumping ship because the NDP have been a viable opponent in the last couple of elections like they they've they've gotten the premiership in alberta for god's sakes like they're doing they are becoming politically stronger so i think it really adds to the fact that they're really there is racism and i think that to be honest a lot of the racism is pointed towards the right but there's a lot of racism on the left like it doesn't matter what like what what like where you stand on the spectrum like race like racism is racism like it exists and it exists in canadian politics but we're too nice to talk about it well not well, not nice, but like you get it, like in quotation marks, too nice to talk about it because we're we're afraid that we're gonna get people mad or we're gonna, you know, call someone a racist. And it's like, okay, not every racist is like a KKK member burning a cross on someone's lawn. Like racism is something that even I've felt like I've grown up with and something that you have to unlearn. And if people are not willing to unlearn it, like racism will always exist. And if we don't create these spaces to talk about these issues, just like we don't talk about other issues and try to at least like create like a culture of, oh, yeah, like, you know what, you can be wrong and you can learn from that and move forward, then we're never going to solve these problems because people you're going to have people who are going to cop out to being like, oh, like everything I do is wrong. This is it. And I think a lot of the times that's stupid and it's just a cop out. So then people don't ever learn anything. But I think there is a sense of frustration among people who are trying to learn and unlearn and that there's like this, always this sort of like tension of like, and I think this also gets into like a very muddy, muddy, muddy spot where you have people who are genuinely oppressed and really sick of like people being, you know, discriminatory towards them and feeling like they always have to have the responsibility to explain but then you also have like the people who like don't understand what the hell is going on and they're like you have like the good natured ones the bad natured ones obviously and like everyone in between and then you have like this collision of like shit like how do we how do we move forward with this and I think that everything despite being sort of separate sort of ties itself together with as a society and I think within western democracies because we've not created spaces for us to have like decent dialogue and now that we have the internet where you can have like free dialogue all over the place and have created like these bubbles and spaces where people discuss like sort of create these echo chambers we've lost this sort of like deliberation aspect to our political system where we can talk to people who have different viewpoints than ours and have different experiences and can comment on specific things and i think that in that in that way the internet isn't a great thing because we've created like this 
vacuum where we can't really learn about certain things anymore. And then our political system further aggravates that by not creating the spaces for us to participate. And I think that Canada's in a bigger mess than we really make it out to be because we aren't really dealing with any of this. And that's kind of sad in so many ways, but also a huge opportunity for us. Like, you know, we we look at a bunch of other, like our neighbors and see like what's been going down there. And we can really learn from that. And we can say, you know what? Like we have a lot of these symptoms. Like, why don't we change that? Like, why don't we do something different? For sure. And I hope, and I hope, and I hope that this next election highlights that I just, it's unfortunately dependent on who gets elected. And I want, like, I can't say who will, and I can't say who would be better at being elected when it comes to those changes. But I think it's really up to us to determine how we deal with that and how we want to move forward as a, as you know, people involved in the political system, but also the society. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we're almost at an hour and 15 minutes. I don't know how much more time you have. I have um, a lot of time. And you yeah, can cut okay. whatever you need to. <laughs> okay, okay. No, 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 no. I, this, this is a really interesting conversation, but I do want to move on to music because obviously yeah. that's, you know, I, I always love talking about music and that's where we yeah. became friends. Um, but one last question on the politics side. Because we've been talking kind of on the depressed, depressive side oh, for the last little while. Um, and, you know, it's been a lot of cynical the, for our conversation so far. Um, but do you have anything optimistic about this election? What do you see that, you know, is that you are optimistic about in the next couple of months leading up to the election? I think... I'm really happy climate change is going to be something that people push. I'm really glad that's on the table. Like, I think that's really, it's good that the people, like the, like the public for like, like in the vast majority are like, this is the problem and we need to combat it. And I think it's been a long time coming. Like I remember back when like an inconvenient truth was released and people were like, Oh shit, climate change. And then it sort of died out again. I don't think it's going to die out. And I think that's where my optimism really comes out because I think that people are going to make small changes to decrease their carbon footprints. I know I've been doing my best, so, you know, obviously it could be better. And I think that the more that that becomes like a stable, there's something called a valence issue and a valence issue like defined within like public opinion research is an issue that doesn't have like a partisan tinge to it. It's just sort of like, it's in the same way that, um universal health care has become in the last couple of years where like everyone sort of is like we're gonna have health care like it doesn't matter what side you're on you might cut certain things to it but we're always gonna have health care like yeah. no one no one can touch that or you're, you're it's political suicide and th- i think that's what climate change is slowly becoming i hope it becomes that faster but i think that people are really motivated to fight for that and i think secondly i think this i like to think and i'm gonna keep holding this because i just like I believe in Canadians I in, in some way, and I believe that we all will come to this. I think that this is an election closer to let brings us closer to electoral reform. I don't think this necessarily might be the election where we get electoral reform following, but I think following the election of like Doug Ford and follow and like the last election of Trudeau and now the next election, I think it's becoming very, very clear that more and more people are getting sick of our political system. And I think that, following this election, I think that 
we might become more creative about the ways in which we push for electoral reform. And I hope that does happen. I think that there are a lot of groups and advocates who are pushing for that. And um, I'm going to be optimistic in saying that I think it is very, very possible. And it's going to be more possible after this election. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, you know, I, I just want to shout out some really interesting and really great groups that are that are working hard yeah. this election that um, are have been promoting democracy since day one and trying to uh, engage Canadians and, um, you know, groups like Samara Canada, Kendall, yeah. um, Kendall Anderson, that's there, um, Jane Hilderman, who uh, is on Matt leave right now. Um, who else? Uh, Apathy is Boring, Civic Action, uh, the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, Scott Young, I think you know him. Um, Scott, Young's a, uh, Scott Young's a great person. Um, uh, who else? Uh, there's so many of these yeah. these groups. Democracy Lab at Ryerson, yeah. who's, um, yeah. yeah, they're they're getting, you know, doing a get out the vote sort of campaign um with uh with this election so there's some really great groups that are are working hard this election um that have been been preparing for the last year or for the last couple of months and um you know they're doing good work and i i really hope um there is some optimism i think with um citizens getting more engaged with this election and I think that the, like, especially in the last couple of years, more and more grassroots organizations have come about almost to fill the gaps that the political system has sort of left us with. And when it comes down to it, as much as, like, I'm in political science and I study politicians and governments, when it comes down to it, it's always, like, and that's the beauty of democracy, it really always comes down to the people, no matter what it is, it, it comes down to us. And I think that seeing these grassroots organizations pop up and take matters into their own hands is really what it is all about. Like as much as we have a dreadful electoral system, like we are not, we're always going to have problems. We're always going to outgrow some things as a society that don't work. And it's a shame that we haven't gotten to it earlier, but what is sort of coming out of this is this like, like these organizations that are popping up and really pushing people to fight for their democratic rights and fight for space and fight for participation. I think that is really, what also keeps me very optimistic because as someone who is always in campaigns, like we don't, can't, we can't campaign if, if we don't have people, if we don't have voters, right. if we don't engage with voters, if we don't talk to, and people who are not even voters, like we, like we talk to everyone and it's like, when it comes down to it, that's, I th and I think that, as much as I think our political system jades a lot of people, I'm really excited to see how these organizations and more organizations that do come out and have grown and are smaller now and might become more well-known later or are small and working within their specific communities. Like I'm excited to see the tactics they take and the ways in which they work so, so hard in trying to do something that, you know, should already be done. And I think that's, I think that's beautiful. And I think that's, yeah. that's what that's and that's where our democracy succeeds in some way that we we have the freedom to be able to fight for these things, which is very yeah. like um, a bit, you know, you know, a bit uh, freedom prizey. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> no, for, for sure. I think that's a great way to wrap up, you know, talking about politics, which is that politics and democracy ultimately is about people and is ultimately about human beings and the policies uh, that we that these politicians pass 
um, the people that we elect, um, ultimately they are going to affect human beings. And um, it's easy to lose track uh, of who politics is all about. Um, it's not just about power or being reelected, about the money. It really is about the people that the policies are going to affect, you know. And I think that's a you you the way that you ended off with that. I think is a really good way to wrap up that conversation. Um, so I want to talk about music now. Um, yeah, uh, I I wanted to start off with this one question. I, I I'm going to catch you off guard, um, yeah. but. Um, What's a song that, what's a song or a lyric that uh, has spoken out to you um, for the last little while or, uh, you know, a favorite lyric of yours? Um, something that has spoken to sort of your emotional state or the values that you hold? Because um, in, in the end, music is, is really an emotional, um, an emotional action. It is an emotional thing and it hits us. Um, good music really hits us on an emotional level. So is there a lyric that you've held on to or a song you've held on to that means a lot to you that you can share with uh, with the podcast? Yeah, oh, I'm trying. Okay, there are two. Um, I've had, it's been interesting. Moving to Denmark has been a lot harder, even though I've like lived here before and I have friends and like I have a boyfriend here, like I have a life here. But it was a lot harder than I thought it would ever be. Um, and I think, and it was mostly just like a lot of self-esteem and like self-doubt. And like, I always sort of had that, but it was just, it was a different kind. It was very much like a, moving to a new country, like dealing with some like big life things and just all that sort of stuff. So I think that Lizzo has just been really good for me because I just, I didn't, I didn't really want to be sad all the time about it and juice has been really like the song like since it's been released it's just been like the song that i sort of go back to and i think that like when i'm shining everybody gonna shine like that has been like the line where i sort of go back to because i'm like i think especially especially in capitalism we get really competitive and we think that if someone else is succeeding I'm failing and that has been something that I've sort of had to unlearn over the last couple of years especially growing within my career and I think it's really nice that you just sort of have that like no like if I'm doing well I'm gonna make sure others are doing well like if I'm like you know a positive energy like I'm gonna let other and like everyone's gonna shine like that and I think that's really beautiful and I think like Lizzo sort of embodies that which she's like I love myself and like that I think is is like it's pretty like revolutionary in the sense of like I'm gonna love myself and like that's it like I don't care what anyone else thinks like I'm gonna love myself and I think that is something that I've really tried to teach myself over the last little while because you know can't if like if you can't love yourself uh, how the hell are you gonna love somebody else you know and like I definitely have seen that sort of like manifest in so many different ways and it's also cheesy in so many ways but it's true in a lot of ways and that's like the song that I've gone back to and then like the the heart wrenching like I'm on the dance floor I'm gonna like like go crazy it's been dancing on my own by Robin I don't know why but oh I it. love that it's like I saw her at Oscar like I I was like in the, my friend was like let's go stand and try to get to the front and we got to like the main pit and oh my god it was 
I've seen her live before, so this wasn't shocking, but it was just, like, amazing. And when it got to Dancing on My Own, I cried. Like, I haven't cried at a concert in years. Hmm. And it was just, like, I don't know what it was. It was just, like, there's this, like, sadness in it, but also this happiness. It's sort of, like, you're, like, I'm overcoming it, but it also kind of vaguely sucks. And that was sort of, like, my year. (laughs) It was, like, I'm getting over it. It vaguely sucked, but it got better, and it's fine now. So, like, it was it was a bit of that. I always like those, like, melancholic tracks that are sort of, like, they sound happy, but they're vaguely sad, but they're, like, they're still kind of happy. And, I'm like, those are the ones I could act with, really, because I feel it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, Dancing on My Own is a great track. That's the one on from Girls, right, that was featured on Girls? I think so. Yeah, I'm and then sure. and then there's that I I love call your girlfriend. That oh, that's also good. a great song. Um, I uh, this full disclosure in my spare time I dance around to that song and try and mimic Robin's dance moves from that song. It's, I gotta do that with dancing on my own. Like, yeah, it's um, great. I feel like, like not. Yeah. But yeah, sorry? let's move on. We, yeah, we yeah, talk not... about Robin for hours. Like yeah, what's <laughs> I, I think there's 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 something really cool about some of these songs that sound happy, um, but you know underneath it all there's some sort of um, I don't want to say depressive, but um, melancholic or some sadness to it. And for me, that that artist has always been LCD Sound System. Um, yeah. yeah, all my. Uh, all my friends, uh, where are your friends tonight? That that line always gets me. Um, uh, what else? Um, home. Uh, that about you know going home and you know uh, that's the trick. It's uh, it's the end of a terrible year that gets me. Yeah. Um, or someone great. Um, you know, uh, finding out about someone dying on the on the phone and. The all the emotions that come with it, um, yeah. I I really love LCD Sound System for that exact same yeah. emotion that you're kind of uh, talking about. And on a little, little bit of a side note, my girlfriend and I have been watching Gossip Girl, and the soundtrack is actually amazing. They played LCD Sound System, The Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, um, uh, Vampire Weekend. Um, it's it's pretty great, and I I don't I I wouldn't have get, ever guessed that a TV show would feature some really really sad song like someone great. Yeah, and what was it, Lizzie? Mc, I've been really rewatching Lizzie McGuire lately because it's supposed to come back, like it's supposed to be rebooted as Lizzie McGuire as like a thirty year old living in New York. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> my team, my my childhood dreams are coming true. I get to see more Lizzie McGuire. But anyway, they were playing like David Bowie. They were playing a lot of David Bowie in that series, and just like a bunch of just like classics. And I'm like, how the hell did you get the rights for this? But also, thank you, Disney. And it was just like damn like you you were introducing the kids to some good you're introducing the kids some good shit like good for you so yeah Yeah, i get that i get like the most random shows that have the best soundtracks but yeah um yeah saint vincent's like earlier stuff is definitely like that melancholic but she sounds like a disney princess at times like she like especially on after she does like these really whimsical like 
like instrumental parts in like some of her songs, but like she's really talking about something like really dark, like her boyfriend cheating on her or something. And it's like, yeah. it's really cool. And I really like that. And I think that like Strange Mercy was also like very much like that in like a different, in a different way. I've always loved that about St. Vincent. She's always been really, really good at that, which is why like I adore her, like yeah. great artist. What have you been listening to recently? Megan the Stallion, basically. I've listening I've been listening to a lot of Megan the Stallion. I'm pulling up pulling up uh pulling up the music. I have sixteen gigabytes on my iPhone, which is very detrimental to my music listening. <laughs> it's been a bit annoying. I listened to the new Lana Del Rey today and I was actually really like I really liked her old stuff, so this was quite nice, actually. I really liked it. Um do have you seen the have you seen the BET freshman cipher with Megan Thee Stallion? No, I haven't. Okay, I so you have to see that. Um, yeah. She absolutely kills all of the other MCs that she's featured with. She is definitely yeah. the best freshman rapper out there right now. Fresh, yeah, and Rico and and Rico Nasty. I love. I've been listening to a lot of Rico Nasty and Doja Cat as well. I love Doja Cat. Um, and I love Rico Nasty. I feel like they're both really great. I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. I think I've like I'm I've just been really really on a hip hop kick. But yeah. on the non hip hop that I've been listening to, there's a Danish artist. Her name is Jada. I've been listening to her for like a year now, and she dropped an album about like a month or two ago, and it's beautiful. Like I really like I really want to write about her because she has like a really beautiful voice, and it's like. The thing is that doing hip-hop and R&B in North America almost feels a bit appropriative at times in ways that can be very problematic. But she does, like, R&B in a way that's, like, mostly just pop, but it's, like, it, like R&B-inspired in a way that's very much hers and not appropriate at all. Yeah. And I really like that. I'm like, wow, this, like, it doesn't... It, it, just, it just suits her so well, and she's very different from a lot of the artists that I've listened to. And okay, I really... I've listened to her, then. She's great. She has a really beautiful voice. And she was sampled on another, I forget what the EP was, but she was like, like I need to find, I think I'll find this later and then I'll like tell you and then you can attach it to like the disruption or something. Yeah, but, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, I, I need you, to find it. Yeah. Have you listened to the new Chance Rapper? What are your thoughts on it? It's It's pretty it. controversial on that. I, I haven't. I don't no. think I've had like the time to give it a good listen. To be honest, like today was the first time I was able to like sit down and actually listen to something in like the last little bit because yeah. I just started my semester. But like, I also don't. I, I know this sounds really bad. I don't know if I want to listen to it. Like I've heard that. Like I've heard only negative things about it, and I'm like, I kind of want to let it all die down a little bit more, and yeah. then I'll go to it. Um, also because like. Yeah, I, I don't know. I also kind of want to listen to it after the new Kanye album comes out because, like, if the Kanye app album is a big, it, like, ends up being extremely controversial, then maybe I'll feel like the Chance the Rapper album is a bit less controversial. Like, yeah. I, I think I need, I need, like, a re I need something to relate it to so then I can assess it within a greater context as opposed to, like thinking about all the negative things I've heard about it because I think at this point like it can only really impress me like it can't disappoint me which I think is a good place to be in but also like Chance the Rapper canceled at Washington Festival and I'm supposed to see him and I'm also really bummed about that so Chance and I are not we're not on good terms right <laughs> now so I'm gonna 
I'm going to give it some time. I'm going to see if Kanye is going to disappoint me. And then if he does, then I'll be less mad at Chance. But if Kanye <laughs> impresses me, then I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll let's, wait another six months. Let's talk a little bit about Kanye because um, talk about controversial figures. Uh, Kanye is definitely one of the most controversial figures. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on listening to Kanye after all of the, basically all of the shit that's gone down with Kanye and all the craziness and um, his support for Trump? Like, has that affected the way that you listen to Kanye? It has, and it also hasn't. And it hasn't in the sense that I'm really, I have a soft spot for Kanye. I really like, I, and I also listen to a lot of his older stuff. Like I haven't listened to anything post his declaration for his support of Trump. So I almost feel like I'm listening to like the old Kanye. So like, mm. I feel like I can separate himself from now because I didn't like Yee, I wasn't interested in it. Like I listened to it once, I was like, I'm never listening to this again. Um, but I also watched his interview with David Letterman and the way he described his support for Donald Trump does not justify it. I'm putting, I'm saying this right now, but it makes sense because he's not the kind of person to like trust institutions, which is yeah. pretty like vaguely what he was saying. And Donald Trump dismant like dismantles institutions, not in a good way, but I can understand in the sense like it's a very in the in the way that Kanye West never used to vote, I can understand the logic of why he chooses to support Donald Donald Trump. I'm not justifying it in any capacity i don't think it's a very good thing i don't think it's a good for like america's black population and like minorities and marginalized communities no i hate donald trump i don't think this is like particularly a good thing but he never used to vote he didn't he did he wants to dismantle this institutions and he's sort of like i can understand his twisted logic of like electing donald trump is going to revel like is going to change the way america is and it has and i think in that way i can understand his logic yeah. Does it justify, does it change the way I look at his music? I look at it through a different lens. In the exactly, that's of, exactly it. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I really, I, I think maybe this is a weakness of mine. I don't hate Kanye, or maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. I don't hate him for it all. I don't, I've lost some of my respect for him, but I also can understand, and this is where I've like, in working for Clinton and like and talking to a bunch of people who like were really jaded by the American political system and were about to vote for Donald Trump, I can understand in some way where they're coming from in the sense of like this was the only way that they had an option to change the way things were. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's the way that Kanye feels, you know, he has every right to do it. And I'll look at his music more critically in that way, in the sense of like I won't look at this as like a representation of maybe what he once was when he was, you know, setting aside George W. Bush saying, you know, Bush doesn't care about black people. Like, yeah. I'm going to look at it through a different light of like, okay, like he's either dismantling something or trying to reclaim something in a different way. So it's not going to be like the same. Yeah. I think I'm going to analyze it in a very yeah. different way, but I don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to bump to Kanye the same ever again. I think yeah. that, I think that has changed. Like I still bump to like life of Pablo. Like I still bump to his old music. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do that with his music because I think it's just, it's going to be under that mindset. And I think that I'll still get something out of his music, but I don't think that I'm going to 
be as happy listening to it or as motivated listening to it. Like, I don't know if it's going to be on my hip, like on my like workout playlist or something like that. Like, I don't, I don't think it's going to be like that. So yeah. but we'll see. It's supposed to be gospel. So that I'm, I'm really interested to see what he does with that. Um, I'm also, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that. Those are my thoughts on Kanye West. Yeah. They're very conflicted. <laughs> They're very conflicted, and I think that also because he has had a variety of mental health issues, you know, I'm glad that he's been very open about that. That doesn't excuse his conduct. Like, oh, exactly, like, yeah, for sure. Oh, no, it doesn't. He's, like, very calculated in the way that he supports Donald Trump. But I'm glad that he's been open about mental health issues because I think that's really helpful for maybe a lot of his fans who really, really do look up to him. And I think that's been, like, a good a good out of that. But, yeah, yeah. people are nuanced, and I think that Kanye West is a perfect example of a public figure who is incredibly nuanced. And I think that, you know, there's like this sort of cancel culture. And I think that it can be very problematic at times when, you know, people are also trying to navigate through new terms and new like learnings and stuff like that. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes I'm like not mad about some cancels, but at some, sometimes I'm like, Ooh, like we need to give some people a little bit more nuance. And maybe some people a chance. I don't know if we should give Kanye a chance. Like, I think I think we kind of understand a sense of what Kanye is like right now. But, like, no one... I feel like no one's really canceling Kanye, actually, now that I think about it. Has anyone canceled Kanye? I think I think quite a few people have tried to cancel Kanye. Yeah, but, like... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a... It's a I think that... Yeah, I think I'm bringing up a really complicated topic that I don't even think I have the knowledge nor the expertise or a real opinion, a hard-fledged opinion on. But I think when it comes down to it, my point is that nuance is necessary, especially when it comes to people. And oh, yeah, for sure. People, yeah. And giving people the opportunity to learn as well, I think, is a good thing. But, of course, that requires context. Like, I don't think that, like, you know, I'm... I, we're... Yeah. There, there are some people that I'm like, that's too extreme. I don't, I don't think, I think we can, can we can mentally cancel that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. For sure. Um, on Kanye, you know, for me, I think it's, um, I, I see him in the same way that I viewed historical figures, you know, coming from a history background at U of T, where you take these historical figures and you take the good and the bad and you uh, critically look at them, you know, and Kanye is someone that you just have to look at critically. Um, you have to really analyze everything that he does um, and look at it from uh, almost like a cynical, critical lens, you know, um, yeah. and that that's that's how I felt ever since we, you know, the, all these uh, these uh, issues with Trump. Um, I am still always of the belief that you have to try and separate the art from the artist. But with Kanye, it's becoming harder and harder to do that. And like you said, when I listen to Kanye's music now, it becomes tinged with what I now know about Kanye. And yeah. to, to just add a little bit about um, the mental health thing, you know, he has said that he has bipolar disorder, but what really concerns me is that he is like, you know, I'm I'm getting off of this these medications. You know, I don't need these medications. When in reality, um, in reality, if you have a, a, a mental illness like that, um, you can't fuck around with medications. 
you really cannot fuck around with medications because that is super dangerous. And when you tell other people, especially your fans, that your medications make you crazy um, and you are only your true self when you are off your medications, that's dangerous. And that's something that I have really come to hate Kanye for. But, you know, honestly, I, I still bump to My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. I maintain that My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is the best album of the 2010s. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can't, I can't, I can't fuck around with that, with that judgment, you know? Um, yeah. So Kanye is such a, just a difficult, controversial figure to really yeah. figure out and to have opinions on. I'm also glad you brought up the medication thing. I completely forgot about that. Oh my God. Yeah. But I think that also ties to his like critique of institutions. Like he just thinks that people are trying to sell him shit. Like, and that's like, of course, like doesn't justify it but it you can kind of understand where he's coming from but it's still so 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 dangerous like yeah, yeah no i didn't i completely forgot about that but yeah man but also i like there's also the sort of like dumbbell standard that exists with artists and i think you can go and like talk about this for ages but like especially when it comes to separating the art from the artist like for me like i've canceled some artists because there are just certain things that I really can't get past. Like, Action Bronson has been canceled for me forever. Oh, for um, sure. But, but, for example, Azalea Banks, I'd never really canceled, even though I'm, like, I'm kind of sick of... I'm absolutely sick of her shit. Like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. But at the same time, I'm, like, I haven't canceled her. But also, I know she's getting a hard time, because a harder time than, for example, Action Bronson is, because she's a woman of color. Like... There are so many complexities to that and when it comes to like when do you separate the art from the artist but also realize that like there are like some artists are also in like like relatively marginalized positions within like the way in which they can express themselves and create their art that it becomes very difficult and that's where i talk about cancel culture being problematic in the sense of like sure you're not giving people like the chance to learn and whatnot like maybe that's like a more my new point but it's also sort of like i think we're losing the sense of like why are we canceling this person? Like, why are we, why are we doing this? Is it because this person has been like really toxic and like, we just can't have this anymore? Or is it, and like, they've been really problematic and have put people's lives in danger? Or is it because like, we're annoyed by them and you know, they've been like really, or they've made some, like, I don't know. It's really complicated. And I think yeah, I always go sure. back to it because I kind of want to find an answer to it. And I don't think we ever will, because I don't know if there's a right answer to it when it comes down to it. And I definitely shouldn't be bringing it up because I just make it all more, all the more confusing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it also might be time for me to cancel Azalea Banks too. Like, mostly, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think she's a really great rapper. It's really, it's really a shame. I, I think with her, I've been having a hard time separate the art from the artist in the end, because there is an aggression that comes out in her rap that I like, but I also sometimes can see that maybe at times it's coming from a place of malice and that I don't think we need that in yeah. this era in this uh time and place like i'm fine with aggressive rap I'm, I'm fine with like i'm totally okay with that like don't get me wrong but i think azalea banks presents something that maybe you know we don't we don't need to encourage it yeah for maybe sure that's the best way to put it for sure okay uh lightning round of a few new releases and some some music i've been listening to and just give me just just choose a couple of them uh let me know what you think um, if you've listened to them or not. Um, JSOM, the new JSOM album, love it. 
the new Bon Iver album, um, the new National album, uh, Big Thief, um, either uh, uh, UFOF uh, that came out earlier this year or the new one that's that's coming out uh, in the next couple of months. So Big Thief has had uh, quite a bit of a um, quite a bit of a run this year. Um, I've been listening to Hot Shit because I want to go see their show, but yeah. I don't. I uh, tickets are really expensive, so I probably won't. Uh, Paramore. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Bruce Springsteen, uh, Los Campesinos, um, Wyo, uh, Hop Along. Um, any anything that that catches your. Uh, catches your attention that you want to talk about um any of the new releases that you've listened to oh my god i'm gonna pick like one of the more boring ones i'm gonna talk about the national for a bit okay what do you what are your thoughts on that i've been listening to them since like my like grade 10 like i've been obsessed with the national i think i've seen them twice i've been disappointed both times i've seen them actually which is really yeah okay young and dundas wait you went to the Okay, I so... went to Matthew Hall show like a couple years back. Like it was like, not a couple years back. It was many years back. It was like I must have been at the end of first year, so it must have been like 2014 or something. That was the three night residency at Massey Hall, yes. right? Yeah, was but people, residency. people keep talking about that as a legendary, you know, residency because those were the shows that Matt Berninger climbed up the balconies of uh, Massey Hall. You you really didn't like that show? I don't did he I don't think he climbed the balcony to show is that. Um it was fine. Like I don't know. I think it's also I don't know what it is. I've never found them to be that extraordinary of a live band to be like really? and, which is, and that's because maybe I expected too much of them. Like I will give them the benefit of the doubt in that way. But I think that at times like I don't know. It was just there was always something lacking for me, and it's not objective in any way. It's entirely subjective. Like I don't, I can't pinpoint. And also, that was a really long time ago, so I'm really trying to remember it. And I just, I remember leaving that show, sort of being like, it was good. That was, that was it. Like that, I didn't, I didn't leave like being like, wow, that was an amazing show. Like I've seen some amazing shows where I've left and I've been like, goddamn, like. I saw Sleater Kinney at fucking Sound Academy and it, I thought it was amazing. Like, and, and it was at freaking Sound Academy. Like, those are the, those are the shows I remembered. I'm like, the National at Massey Hall really was a recipe for success. And I just left sort of being like, eh, it's fine. Like, it just was a bit lackluster for me. I think maybe because it was like, I don't know. I, I think people saw something in it that I didn't. And I'm glad that they did. I'm glad that they enjoyed it. I still enjoyed it, but it just wasn't, it wasn't this, um, pivotal moment in my concert going experience let's just say yeah. that okay um, but so yeah new album. On, yeah thoughts on new album thoughts on sleep well beast uh i think it, i i actually quite i quite liked it um they always have like a couple of tracks per recent like in their most recent albums they always have a couple of tracks that are like really perfect they yeah. become a bit like guided by voices where like they'll release they've like re- except they don't release in the same in you know they don't release the same amount as Guided by Voices. Guided by Voices are a little, they're in their own, they're in their own sphere of releases. Mm-hmm. But they always release like a couple of perfect tracks. 
And I, and I can appreciate that. I think also because I think the nationals for me are always going to be something that like, I sort of go back to, I always sort of like listen to them and like, I'm like, okay. And I also kind of remember a time in my life where I was really sad and listened to them. And I think, um, and I think that's good. So I'm kind of like, I think the national are sort of at the point where I'm like, they can't disappoint me because they're always going to put out something solid and there's always going to be a track or two that I really like. And they're going to be pretty like all for all intents and purposes, pretty inoffensive to me. And, but I'm always going to have the very fond memories of listening to their music. And I think that's like a perfect relationship you can have with a band actually that you used to listen to that you maybe don't listen to as much. So new national album, it's pretty good. I I, I vibe with it. Um, I'm like, I haven't, you you mentioned so many bands that I haven't listened to since high school, like Love Campesinos and Why Oak I have listened to since high school. That's a freaking lie. I have. Yeah. Um, oh, no, One I'm thinking the... of Waste Blood. I'm thinking of Waste Blood. I'm not thinking of Why Oak. Um, I oh, have not listened yeah. to Why Oak since high school. That's a lie. Um, uh, the Waste Blood album is pretty good. I liked it. It's great. I really liked it, actually. Yeah. I um. The girl from Wyoke, or she's now she's she's got her own solo stuff, Flock of Dimes. She's yeah. helping out. Uh, she's on the Bonnie Bear album. Um, she's yeah. a featured person, and she is touring with them. And Justin Vernon invited her to participate in Bonnie Bear, and um, she's like basically a full time member now with the uh, with Bonnie Bear. I haven't listened. I haven't listened to the new Bonnie Bear album just because like. Again, I have no storage on my phone, so I don't get to download a yeah. lot of albums. It's nice to forget about it. Um, I do want to listen to that. Bonnie Bear is the artist that, like, I was obsessed with in high school. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And now I'm like, I really, I liked it. I really did like his last album. I love his work with James Blake. That's usually, like, that's usually, like, where I'm like, I'm, I'm always there. Like, I always love it for yeah. the most part, even if it might not be the most exciting. Like, I remember when he released, uh, what was it? Oh, the one with the wolf on the cover. I know what you're talking about, but... I know, that single. It was the first single that James Blake and Bonnie Vera did. And I remember Pitchforker being, being like, it's fine. It was exactly what you'd want a James Blake and Bonnie Vera track to sound like. And I'm like, that's amazing. Like, that's, that's exactly... It... like that's A Fall Creek Boys Crier. That's what it was. Fall Creek Boys Crier? Or Creek. I, need, I Need a Forest Fire? I Need a Forest Fire was on the... Not the last James Blake album, the James Blake album before that, and that was yeah. the second track they did. Unless they did another track in between that I'm not aware of, and or and or forgot have forgotten about. But it's Fall Creek Boys Choir because it came out in like 2015, 2014. No, 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 like no, I take that back. It was like 2011, 2012. Yeah. Yeah, it came out in 2012. I think it was 2012, and it was like, yeah, I remember Pitchfork reviewing it, being like, oh yeah, it was just like like, what you'd expect a track by them to sound like, and I was yeah. like, yeah, amazing, freaking amazing, and I just, I love that, I love, I love yeah. Ben so much, I'm excited to hear what Bonnie Bear does, he's evolved, I think he's the kind of um, artist that has been really able to evolve past the sort of, like, Urban Outfitters indie rock that was really popular at the time that he peaked. Oh, yeah, for sure, like, Mumford and Sons, kind of, and Lumineers, kind of, stuck around with that same sound, but Bonnie Bear evolved from there. And I, I think that's really, like, the the true, like, test of an artist. Like, if, I think if you're able to create your own artistic identity and create things that, like, you're both proud of, but also, like, like, you can be an artist without having people listen to you. Like, that's a given. Like, and you can do whatever the hell you want. And it's, like, it's art. Like, obviously, like, don't hurt anyone and stuff like that. But you get it. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. you 
but I think that he's the kind of person who's been able to be an artist and sort of have this sort of, you know, base and respect amongst the people who listen to him to always sort of be relevant when he releases something in some capacity. And I think that's yeah. really, I think it's a testament to the kind of artist he is. And I yeah. appreciate it. And I think James Blake isn't also an artist like that, but he'd always kind of had a genre bending sound. So he hasn't, I think, had to do as much work as maybe Bonnie Bear has. Um, in shifting it but his last album was very like hip-hop based production and stuff like that and, oh i loved it i ate it up it was really really nice yeah and i like that he kind of moved moved away from the like it was melancholic but it was still more of a happy album and i really liked that he kind of was like i'm not making depressing music because i'm not i'm not i'm not into it i'm not that's not me right now and i yeah i think it's a really good job of sort of following that and i think bonnie Vare follows his artistic vision i think in a similar way that james blake follows his like emotions yeah I think you'll like then the second track of the new Bonnie Bear album, I Am I. That's got James Blake on it. It's got James Blake written all over it, but um, quite a few other collaborators on it. Um, but um, and and James Blake is uh, has vocals on it. But um, that's a great track. I think you'll like the new album. Um, James Blake, uh, I love Retrograde. Retrograde was such a big thing for me. Or uh, Overgrown. I think the album is called Overgrown. Retrograde Overgrown, yeah, was, it was. Yeah. yeah, was a song on there. But I will always go back to James Blake's um, EP Enough Thunder with the um, uh, A Case yeah. of You, A Case you. of You cover. Oh. oh, like, okay, so the Joni Mitchell uh, original of A Case of You is untouchable and still perfect. But the James Blake version is also amazing and very melancholic. And uh, I listen to it in my sad times. You know, that's just... It's oh a God. perfect always, cover, you know? I always go back to that song. And, and even, like, James Blake is the kind of person who can do a cover and, like, do it, like, really do it justice. Like, his cover to Limit to Your Love was also, like, stunning. Like, he he also really does have the voice for it, though, because he can he can sort of, like, no matter what, it's always going to sound sort of like James Blake. And I think that, that he has that really going for him to add sort of, like, his touch to a song. And that's really just, like, in his, like, beautiful voice. But yeah, yeah, for it. sure. That album, that album was truly underrated. I remember it didn't get very good reviews, but I do distinctly remember that EP being quite good. It was definitely heavily played. I'm trying to yeah. think what other tracks are on it, but yeah. Anyway, great, great EP. Um, yeah. Let me think of the other artists. Have you listened to um, the? Wait, oh my god, I pulled it up on my title and then I lost it. Um, uh, the High Women, because country, because country's back. But you should listen to the High Women. They're bringing High again, Women, okay. Bringing, the High Women. Their new album is pretty good. I was pretty. I I thought it was. I thought it was bopping. There was like a morning when I was listening to like the Dixie Chicks and like Casey Musgraves, and then I put on the High Women, and it was really. It was a solid morning. It was really. It's a. It's a pretty solid album. Of course, I'm not okay. like the biggest country music fan. Like I'm not. It's not always something I choose to listen to, but I did like it as a child, so that's always a bonus. Yeah. The new kind, yeah, and the new kindness album is also really good. Actually, those are two albums I've listened to the most recent, other than the Lana Del Rey album. Okay, and I have the- to listen to that then. Yeah. I I was never really a country fan. Um, I think I re- I kind of really did like the um pop country that 
uh, Taylor Swift did like very, very early on in her career. And I don't even know if you can really categorize that as country, but it's like, you know, kind of more pop, but like still tinges of country. I did really like the Casey Musgraves album. At first, I did not understand it and was just like, I don't understand the hype. But the more I listened to it, the more it grew on me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that with like Taylor Swift, I think after like she just peaked in 1989 and then that was it for me. I just sort of knew, except there's so on Reputation, there's a song called Delicate and like it had a video, like it was a single. It was like an actual like, you know, there was a music video for it. Yeah. I just think it would be the best song to do a remix of, like an electronic, like heavy yeah. bass and stuff. And I'm just like, every time I listen to it, I'm like, I'm just like, how would I want to remix this? But yeah, generally Taylor Swift, not not my cup of tea. I'm, I'm yeah. a lot of other people enjoy her. I question her, her um, some problematic ways in which she takes up space. But, you know, generally I'm like, yeah. Uh, some for me to criticize. I, I like 1989. I thought that was an objectively great pop album. Oh yeah, I for sure. Moved on. Uh, I sort of moved on. I liked Taylor Swift as a kid. I remember Fearless being like an album I listened to because I think I was about 12 when it came out or something. Yeah, and I really did like it as a 12 year old. So yeah, 12 year old me approve. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I'm gonna start to wrap up, but I yeah. would be remiss if uh, we did not talk about Broken Social Scene. So, yeah, uh, yeah, um, exactly. yeah, I saw your little excerpt on your um, website about uh, what Broken Social Scene means to you. Could you, um, I mean, obviously your relationship has probably changed since then, um, but could you explain what you wrote and how you feel about Broken Social Scene now, what place it has for you? Because, you know, for me, obviously, they're my favorite band. I think anybody who's friends with me probably knows that Broken Social Scene is my favorite band, hands down. Um, but, you know, I want to know what's your relationship with the band? I think they'll always be my favorite band, like, no matter what. Like, even if I'm, like, even though I'm more, like, in a hip-hop, like, I'm more interested in hip-hop right now, and, like, I've sort of moved away from, like, some of the artists that I've listened to a lot. Like, of course, I go back here and here and there, you know, to see, you know, what's developing with the artists that I really did listen to. Yeah. Broken social scene, like every single time I just play an album, I'm just like, I, I feel the same thing. Like, I just feel like there's like, like there's just like this, these, ch- not chills, but like there's just something that flows through me every single time I listen to a broken social scene album. Like, no matter, no matter what. And it's like, there's always this like nostalgia that I don't think will ever go away when I listen to Broken Social Scene. Like, they've, they've been a band that have been through like a lot of my formative years and even though now like of course like big like big things happen in my life and stuff like that I think that there's I'm not gonna grow up in the same way I did when I listened to Broken Social Sea like there's just ways in which I grew up and was becoming an adult but there's always this sort of like Broken Social Scene like sort of symbolizes this like band that I always sort of had from like you know teenager to adult and was always sort of like there during these like really really formative years and like oh yeah yeah. remind me of and remind me of times and like you know remind me of certain feelings that I've had and like like when it comes down to it every single time I listen to anthems of a 17 year old girl it's like there's always gonna be like you know that like uh like that like in in a, in a similar way that like dancing on my own comes on at the club and I'm just like yeah like I'm gonna dance this it's just like oh like I'm just gonna sit here and just like 
absorb this like beautiful song and take it all in. And I think broken social scene, though they might not be as a, as forefront in my in my music life as they have in the past, I think they always will be the band that feels like home to me. Yeah, for I sure. Think when it comes down to it, like it, they'll always even though maybe the city has changed, like Toronto has changed and like things have, have changed. I'll always have broken social scene to sort of take me back to like home, like a way in ways I felt like home in Toronto and in uh, with people and like how I felt home is growing up. And I think that home has always been a very like strange concept for someone who's like pretty much lived in the same place their entire life and then moved yeah. somewhere else and, you know, feels home in somewhere completely different. Like, Broken Social Scene reminds me of times when I felt at home in Toronto. Yeah, for like sure. People. And I think that I, you can never take that away from yeah. them and, like, that, you know, relationship to me. So I think I think that's... I, I'm really happy that they still... They, stand, they stood the test of time for me in that yeah. way. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way I feel about Broken Social Scene as well. Just that, as as you said, that that feeling of um, representing Toronto and representing home and all of the feelings towards that. Um, I feel like it's been the soundtrack of my life. Um, they've been there at really important times in my life, um, and uh, they, you know, on a, on a more I guess subjective uh, view, um, Broken Social Scene really was the forefront of indie rock here in. Toronto and um, still kind of uh, fosters uh, a good atmosphere with um, with uh, you know uh, people like Charlotte Cornfield kind of coming out in Toronto and um, uh, the scene here in Toronto. Uh, Kevin Drew and um, and uh, Brendan Canning and um, they all are kind of mentoring these younger musicians uh, here in in Toronto and. You know, as we, you know, we were talking earlier about how indie rock has kind of, um, has kind of diminished it here in Toronto. But for me, there's still been this like little undercurrent. It's hidden. It's it's more hidden. You can't yeah. find it as as easily as you could before. But there are young musicians that are are learning and growing in in Toronto. And I think um, Broken Social Scene has always been you know, kind of part of fostering that that environment. And I think that's that's so interesting when you think about the idea, this this thing I've always thought thought about of this idea of how music scenes develop in a particular geographic region and how they um, form and what factors go into it. And Broken Soul Scene really represents that. All the shows that they've played, all of the people that they've influenced, all of the... Um, the artists that have listened to them. I mean, Maggie Rogers. Um, Maggie Rogers is a great new artist who mm-hmm. um, who grew up listening to Broken Soul Scene, and they had met each other at South by Southwest, and uh, they decided to bring Maggie Rogers onto the stage to sing anthems. Um, yeah. Lord, uh, Lord has that song ribs with um, oh, uh, the yeah, reference yeah. to Lover Spit. You know. But, yeah. 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 Um, what are your favorite songs or maybe favorite lyrics from Broken Social Scene? I'm gonna exclude anthems from this because yeah, like, yeah. I, I think it's sort of like this like this always like sort of gone 
how do, ooh, I need to go through the I need to mentally go through the cattle box. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a moment to to like figure this out. Um I have to like mentally go through their catalog in my head right now. Yeah. I love but I love like I think more recently I love like Hug of Thunder, like the track. Yeah. Like but like the the album's like I think pretty like solid, but like the I think the song's really beautiful. I think like I talked to Feist about it. I, I met Feist yeah. um, and talked to her about her side-side project. I don't know if you remember Hydra. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was Feist, um, Ariel Engel, who is now La Force, um, and uh, I think her name is Julia. I forgot the last name, but Hydra and whether they're going to come out with a new record. Uh, and she's like, Maybe you'll see. Uh, so that was a fun moment. But I, I told her how much I love Hug of Thunder and how I think that might be my favorite song of hers on Broken Social Scene. Just the idea of memory and um, remembering your childhood or remembering these memories, you know? Yeah, exactly. And like, I'm looking through all these songs and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I have a favorite lyric. I think it just depends on the mood I'm in. Like, I think a broken social scene is very emotional, which is like a very, like, almost kind of a cop thing to say to answer the question. But like, yeah. it really is like, I look through, like, to be honest, to be honest, I think my favorite broken social scene song ever, I think will always be Pitter Patter Goes My Heart, which is oh, like, yeah. an instrumental, yeah. which is instrumental. I always sort of go back to it because there's just like, there's just a feeling that's captured in that song that like is just ah uh, it's just it has so like I can't I can't describe it but that and I love that when music is able to do that to encompass a feeling that you can't really describe that's like kind of I think that Emily Haynes actually has a lyric that's like along those lines of like when um from like one of her Emily Haynes and the Soft Skeleton albums but that's besides the yeah. point um uh like uh, I love yeah. I love the duo of late '90s bedroom rock for the missionaries into Shampoo yeah. Suicide. That I think yeah. that's that's one of my favorite um, you, you, moments. Yeah, you forgot it in people is just a beautifully like like put together album. Like everything just fits so well together. Like going from like a Pacific theme to like Casey. Yeah, is it Pacific theme goes to Casey Accidental, right? I'm like trying to deeply remember this. Um, Maybe. Yeah, you know. I'm I'm checking this. I'm checking this because I'm not going to be wrong. I better yeah, capture I'm, the flag. Then it's capture the flag. Then Casey the accidental and the Pacific theme goes into anthems. There we go. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Like, <laughs> I was like, I feel like I'm wrong, but I know that Pacific theme goes <laughs> another big song. It was anthems, but yeah. Also, love Casey the accidental. I think just I'll always go back to you forgot it in people because you forgot it in people is the album that got me into indie rock. Yeah, like, and it's a, it's a perfect it's a perfect album. Perfect album. It's it's. Yeah. It's honestly one of the best albums ever released, period. Like, that's it. Like, I will argue that's the day I die because I think it's just, it's beautiful and it's great. And I think that, like, yeah, Yeah. there are a lot of, yeah, a lot of Broken Social Seas songs that tap into, like, different, uh, like, aspects of my personality, but I'll always go back to you for other people. Yeah. Like, top top three albums for me, formative years in high school that got me into indie rock was You Forgotten People, Broken Social Scene. Uh, Bonnie Vare, Bonnie Vare, and Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix from Phoenix. Oh my god, I think those were like almost. I think Bonnie Vare, Bonnie Vare was, and like for and for you forgot it in people, and I think after 
by St. Vincent. I think those yeah. were I think those were the three because they got me to like different aspects of indie rock, but I also listened to some like random artists, like not random, like they're also great artists. Like I'm not here yeah. to but they're just like sort of random in the sense of like I found them very randomly on Tumblr. Yeah. <laughs> oh, rest in peace, Tumblr. Tumblr still exists. I mean, it still exists, but uh, does no, anyone use really it. use it all that much? I don't you know. Yeah. Still have, like my very angsty Tumblr still going. It's just now reblog photos of reblogged things of like really like reblogged posts of very beautiful photos yeah. now. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah. Let's. I, I. I need to wrap up here. Because we did yep. hit the two-hour mark, uh, so this is gonna run a little long. But I've enjoyed this conversation. Um, we've hit on some really interesting things. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say uh, that you want to talk about before we end off here? Hmm. Um, I've definitely maybe said some things that are maybe objectively incorrect. We'll find out. We'll see. We'll see in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that no matter what it is, I I hope that what people can take from anything that it is that I've said, that I hope that people can use something to bring people together to do something good. And that can be in politics, that can be in art, and that can be in whatever it is. But I hope that people create, like, I hope that people think about the ways in which they can create better spaces for themselves and others. No oh, matter yeah, for sure. Happen. Yeah, for sure. I think that would be like my summative of like, maybe I don't understand certain things that are like really complicated or like maybe I'm overcomplicating them or, you know, like maybe I don't have like finite opinions on specific, very controversial things. But um, I hope that at the very least that regardless of whether people agree with me or not, that they take whatever it is and create better spaces so then we can create better societies yeah oh that's that's a really nice way to end things off yeah. uh, i want to thank you for coming on to the podcast this has been really fun um yeah thanks you know, for having me this has been fun yeah yeah this was just like i don't know like this is a conversation between two friends and just talking about broken souls and saying, why not right yeah, exactly. um yeah um i wish you all the best in copenhagen um Finish up your last year in, in Copenhagen and come back to Toronto and then we can keep watching shows together. Um, and then maybe in a few years we'll co-write an oral history of um, of indie rock and or the music scene in Toronto for the last, uh, let's say, 20 years or since the 2000s. Maybe we'll do that together. <laughs> Sounds great. We'll have to leave a chapter for when I rant about Toronto municipal politics or two. We'll find out. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's something we didn't talk about. The uh, municipal politics affecting the music scene here. And I like uh, vaguely. Yeah, I vaguely hinted at it because I was like, oh, my God, we can go deep into this. And I'm definitely lacking certain knowledge and parts of this. But yeah. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Another, uh, another time. Another time. Okay. Well, may, maybe I'll get you back on a, a, maybe a, another time to talk more music. Always love talking music. Always love talking to you. Thank you so yep. much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. <laughs>